Chapter 8 of the Brighton Boys in the Radio Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. The Brighton Boys in the Radio Service by James R. Driscoll. Chapter 8 The Death of the Spy. The inability of Lieutenant Mackinson to add a single word of further information to what he had said as he regained consciousness on the promenade deck increased the mystery. The young lieutenant, it seemed, had been following the trail which he believed was leading him closer and closer to the object of the hunt, and it was in foraging the links of the chain of circumstantial evidence that the young officer was led into the lower depths of the ship. From a sailor, who did not know why I was inquiring, he told the captain, I learned that on the night the unknown man had invaded the battery room, this sailor had seen another member of the crew, presumably from the engine or boiler room, throw aside something as he hurried along the passageway leading from the wireless room. He was in his undershirt. The sailor said he was about to investigate when he saw us come along, and you stooped to pick up whatever it was that had been thrown away. While I was talking to him, another member of the crew, evidently also from the boiler or engine room, brushed by us. He had disappeared when the sailor said to me, I think that was the fellow, the one that just went by. Not wanting to arouse his suspicions, I ended the conversation with a casual remark and then strolled away until I was out of the sailor's sight and then hurried as fast as I could toward the engine room. I do not know that part of the ship well, and it was very dark down there. I was groping my way along when I thought I heard steps just ahead of me. I stopped to listen, and when the sound was not repeated I proceeded onward. All of a sudden I was grasped by the neck and one arm from behind and thrown into that closet. Before I could utter a word, I was a prisoner behind a locked door. I called several times and, receiving a response, realized that I must be some distance from anyone else and that the noises of the engine completely drowned out my voice. Every moment it became more stifling in there, and I had no doubt that I had walked directly into a death trap. It was then I began signaling on the steam pipe, I guess it was a mighty lucky thing for me that Slim Goodwin strolled out on the deck just at the time he did. And that was all that Lieutenant Mackinson could tell. The mysterious stranger remained what he had been from the first, a desperate and dangerous and unknown spy, lurking somewhere upon the American transport Everett with the intention of making the ship's position known to the German U-boats when the Everett and her convoy of cruisers and destroyers entered the danger zone. Then it was, with the lieutenant temporarily disabled, as a result of the experience, that the three boys from Brighton, who seemed somehow to have been selected by fate as the despoilers of all the spies' plans, put their heads together to devise a scheme of capture. "'We've got more than one good reason for wanting to get this fellow slim,' reminded the others, with considerable warmth, during the course of their deliberations. First and foremost, of course, it is our plain duty to our country, to which he is an enemy and a traitor.' But, in addition to that, there is the knockout that he handed to Joe, and the midnight scare he gave Jerry and me, and finally his effort to kill Lieutenant Mackinson by slow suffocation, not to mention the nerve of that fellow coming back the way he is. Yes, added Jerry, we owe him a lot, and it's up to us to figure out how we can square the debt. Well, said Joe, I think I've got a plan that will work, but we've got to remember that we're dealing with a very shrewd man. Well, what are your suggestions? Slim demanded. That we divide our forces, answered Joe solemnly, lie in wait and try to ambush the foe. Right, cried Jerry. Joe, you'll be a general before this war is over. Along what lines do we disperse our forces, General? asked Slim. Along what lines would his royal stoutness suggest? demanded Jerry. 
Oh, you don't have to keep reminding me that I'm a trifle heavy, Slim replied in a peevish tone. A trifle heavy? Get that, will you? echoed Jerry with a gale of laughter. A trifle heavy? Oh, my! You'll find out if I sit on you, Slim threatened in a belligerent tone. Come on now, said Joe. This isn't making any progress towards capturing the spy. No, Jerry responded, and that's our first duty, even if it is a trifle heavy. I've warned you, Slim snapped out. Quit it now, ordered Joe. Let's get down to serious business. All right, agreed Jerry. Shake, Slim. Just show there's no hard feelings. Won't do it, Slim muttered. Oh, yes, you will, counseled Joe. Shake hands, the two of you. Slim's good nature overcame his feigned reluctance, but as Jerry grasped his hand, he gave Jerry a jerk that nearly took him off his feet. Now we're square, said Slim, as Jerry rubbed his nearly dislocated shoulder. Well, that pull was a trifle heavy, muttered Jerry determined to have the last word. Now my plan is this, said Joe, facing the other two seriously. The nearer we come to the zone of the German submarines, the more this man will try to arrange to notify them of our presence, and to do that he will have to use the wireless somehow. It seems likely that he would make his effort at night, because then it's easier for him to escape detection. Now if we let Lieutenant Mackinson sleep during the day, we could so divide up the work as for all of us to get some sleep, and then all could do watch at night. The lieutenant could be in the wireless room, and one of us in the battery room, while the other two did duty outside. If one of us should hide under the stairway at the upper end of the passage, and the other in the alcove at the other end, no one could reach the wireless or battery rooms without being seen. It would be tiresome and monotonous work, all right, but it might accomplish the result. I'm willing, said Jerry, but you and I will have to do the outside work. Slim's a trifle heavy to get into either of those hiding places. Well, I'll cover the battery room, said Slim, ignoring Jerry's remark. Let's see Lieutenant Mackinson, then, suggested Joe, and they want to find the young officer who was convalescing from his encounter with the spy. When he had approved the plan, they got the okay of the captain. And so it was, four hours later, with Lieutenant in the wireless room and Slim in the battery room adjoining, and Joe and Jerry stowed away in hiding places selected, their long night vigil began. Hour after hour dragged by without a development, the intense silence broken only by the sounds of the engine and the wash of the ship against the sea. To the three boys, unable to see or talk to each other, and Joe and Jerry scarcely daring to move, the minutes lagged like hours, and the hours like dull, black, endless nights. Dawn came, and with it new activities in all parts of the vessel, but without a reward for their watch, and as the two lads crawled from their places of concealment at either end of the passage to join Slim and Lieutenant Mackinson, there were mutual feelings of disappointment, but none of weakened determination. "'What luck?' asked the captain, coming in at that moment. "'None at all, sir,' the lieutenant responded. "'Very well, then. Try it again tonight,' the commander ordered. "'But in the meanwhile, all of you get some sleep. "'You may get better results tonight, for by then we'll be coming into the outer fringe of the submarine zone.' I will arrange for another man to stay in the wireless room during today, and if an emergency arises, he will call you. So the four young men went to bed for some much-needed rest and sleep, and when they awakened it was almost time for mess, directly after which they were up to take their night watch again. I hardly think we will be troubled with U-boats tonight, the captain told them, for it is perfectly clear and there will be a full moon. The sea is calm, and we readily could discern a periscope a long distance away. Truly, it was a beautiful night, and it was in this alluring quiet of seemingly absolute peace that one of the tragedies of the war was soon to be enacted. The Brighton boys and their friend and superior officer, the lieutenant, had been in their appointed places hardly more than an hour, 
when Joe and Jerry at the same instant caught the sounds of some sort of scuffle on the deck above. It came nearer and clearer until finally, as it reached a point nearer to the top of the stairway under which Joe was concealed, the latter could discern the foghorn voice of the first assistant engineer. "'Go on, would ye now,' he commanded, breathing heavily, as though from some violent physical exertion. "'Go on, would ye, I say, or ye be finding it unmightily unhealthy for ye. It's a meself that be mopping up the deck with ye if ye try to get gay once more.' The first assistant engineer was a mighty mountain of a man, but his voice broke off as the commotion started again. Certainly he must have a rough customer to deal with, thought Jerry, if he, with all his great physical strength, could not entirely quell him. "'Ye will, will ye?' hissed the voice of the engineer again. "'Thry to bite me, eh?' And there was the terrible smash of a fist and the unmistakable sound of a man falling upon the deck. "'Ye dirty hound, I've a mind to boot ye into the sea.' And then there were other voices. Jerry heard the captain demanding an explanation, and the ship's doctor spoke. I found him tampering with the wires near the dynamos, the first assistant was saying. I never liked the looks anyway, if you pardon me, sir, for saying it. And when I asked him what he was about, he tried to get away. I grabbed him, and we showed fight. I guess I gave him all he wanted, though, that last time. So, said the captain, in a voice so stern it made Joe wince. And what does this fellow do aboard the ship? He's a third-class machinist, sir, the engineer replied. But if you'll excuse a word for me, sir, I think he's a first-class crook. Yes, and I believe he's worse than that, the captain added, and then, in a voice which seemed to shake the vessel up, stand up. There was a strained silence for a moment, then. Get Lieutenant Mackinson and these boys, the captain continued, and the ship's surgeon started down the stairway to find that Joe and Jerry were already summoning Slim the lieutenant. It looks as though we'd caught the man, the doctor whispered. As the four reached the deck where the captured man stood between the first assistant engineer and captain, who by this time had taken out his revolver, there was a gasp of astonishment from Joe, followed by a louder holy smoke from Slim. "'Do you recognize this man?' the captain asked in a sharp tone. "'I should say I do, sir,' Joe responded. "'He is the man who was planting ammunition in the waters near the Navy Yard that night before we sailed.' "'The very same one, sir,' Slim exclaimed with equal positiveness. The ship's surgeon, who had followed the others upon deck, stepped closer for a better inspection of this enemy. At the same instant, the prisoner, striking out with both hands, knocked the captain's revolver into the air and thrust the engineer from him. Before anyone could interfere, he was dashing down the deck towards the stern. Just as he took a wild, headlong leap over the rail, the captain fired. While the captain, through a speaking tube, was instructing the men in the pilot house to signal below, Reverse engines! The others rushed to the stern of the ship. Far behind them, in the foamy trail left on the moonlit water by the vessel, they saw what seemed to be the head of a man bobbing up and down, and then it entirely disappeared. The ship was turned, and that portion of the sea searched, but without avail. "'Gone,' said the captain, in tones of very evident relief. "'Well, it was death for him, one way or another, and he took his choice.' As the captain and surgeon moved away from the stern rail of the Everett, the three lads and the lieutenant stood there, gazing far out to sea. The man who made me nearly freeze to death in the water, spoke Joe, as though thinking aloud. And pummeled my stomach until it was sore for three days, echoed Slim, in sad reminiscence. And made me run a mile and nothing flat, added Jerry. And fought me to a knockout finish later, mused Joe. And nearly smothered me to death, spoke Lieutenant. And was finally corralled by an Irish engineer, said Slim. Gone, concluded Jerry. And no one here will mourn his departure. End of chapter 8